Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, welcome. This is uh, Bonnie Jenkins. I'm the the, uh, founder and executive director of WCAPS, Women of Color Advance in Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. And it's really uh, my honor to bring you all uh, to another uh, webcast that we have here, um, to our Vive podcast, Vision, Impact, Voice, Engagement. And as we have with the other podcasts that we've done, we have another really amazing woman who's going to talk a little bit about um, what she does right now and how she got to where she is now, some of the transitions that she's gone through in terms of particularly going from government into the private sector. And also, uh, we're welcoming her as a new board member of the organization. So her name is Jane Ree. And she currently lives in New York. And I'm not going to give too much more about her because I want her to do that. <laughs> um, so welcome, Jane. It's really, really an honor to have you here with us. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. And I'm really happy to join the board, too. Excellent. Excellent. It's really, it's really going to be uh, great having you, having you with us. So why don't we start, Jane, by talking a little bit about... Um, uh, just who you are and where you came from and um, and just where you are now exactly. Sure. Um, so I'll start closer to the beginning. Um, I uh, was uh, born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, but uh, my family actually spent my, I spent my early childhood in South Korea, which is where my family is from. And then when we came back to the U.S., uh, I was about five, and then I grew up mostly in Tucson, Arizona, which is about an hour north of the border with uh, Mexico. Um, And I uh, lived there until I was 18. I went off to college and grad school on the East Coast, um, and I ended up, um, through a stroke of luck, I would say, um, my sophomore year of college, I uh, found something called the Pickering Fellowship, and the full name is the Thomas R. Pickering Fellowship, and um, it allowed me uh, to, you know, go on to grad school, which is not something I'd previously considered at the time, um, and then to join the Foreign Service, um, and I was in the Foreign Service for 11 years um, until 2017, Um, did a number of posts um, overseas, but also um, back in DC. Um, And then uh, in 2017, I made the transition to the private sector. And so where I am today is uh, at the Estee Lauder Companies, um, and I'm the Executive Director for Global Public Affairs. Thanks. And why don't we step up, step back a bit and, and talk about um, your interest in the field of international relations and foreign policy. Sure. And you mentioned, of course, that you uh, were part of the Pickering Fellowship. How did that happen? I mean, what made you what made you interested in it when you when you heard about the Pickering Fellowship? Sure. Um, so, 
you know, even back in middle school and high school, I think I was always interested in being, you know, in student student uh, council or student body government. And it was just an interest I had. Um, and part of, I think the international um, angle came from the fact that, you know, I lived overseas when I was younger. And so I always uh, was interested in working, you know, globally. Uh, when I went to college, I uh, decided early on that I was going to major in government and political science. Um, and it's it's funny, I was reflecting on some of these questions today and it's weird, you know, we're speaking on 9-11 and I was a sophomore and I was, you know, on my way to registration uh, the day that 9-11 happened. Um, and that was my sophomore year and it was actually what, you know, a lot of it had a big impact on me and, and many others, but for me, it made me really want to um, do public service. And so, you know, throughout the rest of that year, I started looking into various opportunities to serve. And one of the ones I came across was on the State Department website, and that's how I found the Pickering Fellowship, actually. And so it was later that sophomore year that I ended up applying for and then uh, ultimately getting the fellowship. And that's great. And, and tell us a little bit about uh, the fellowship it, itself and some of the things you did. It might be uh, interesting to uh, some of our, our, our listeners who may have an interest in doing the fellowship. Definitely. Uh, it's a fantastic program. It's, um, it has been in place since the 90s, um, and, it's, and it's changed and grown in different ways over the years. But uh, when I applied for it, it was uh, in the spring of 2002. Um, you can apply for it in one of two stages, either as an undergraduate or as you are applying and looking into going to graduate school. So as an undergraduate, uh, I applied it. Um, it's funded by the State Department. Um, sometimes I describe it as kind of a State Department version of ROTC um, because it does come with some requirements and, and training, if you will, to you know, take certain classes, to take language, um, and it, it provides the funding for you to go on to graduate school. And so you get a master's and, you know, uh, mine was in public affairs or you can, you know, some related field like that. Um, and then afterward you join the foreign service and you have a requirement of a certain number of years, depending on whether you come in as an undergraduate or whether you come in as a graduate, uh, fellow. And so for an undergraduate fellow at the time, it was four and a half years. Um, to get uh, in and to you know get started in the training for foreign service, you do have to pass the test. You still have to you know do the requirements um, and demonstrate your um, uh, your fitness for for the job. Uh, and then and then once you're in, you're in, um, and you fill out your you fulfill your requirements, and you can you know obviously stay on. I stayed on, you know, well past my required time. And then others leave and go on, you know, to do other things. But um, it's a relatively small cohort each year. But it's, you know, it's they are looking for people uh, from diverse backgrounds, and and that's one of the I think real strengths uh, of the program is that you know it's it's across a lot of different you know categories, gender, um, ethnicity, race religion, geography, they're looking for different kinds of people to, you know, show what America really looks like and who we are, uh, especially when we represent the United States overseas. 
So tell us a little bit about um, when you started working in the Foreign Service. Uh, what were some of the places that you went to? And, you know, describe the experience for, for yourself um, those years that you were doing it. Sure. Um, I'd say every Foreign Service officer's career path is uh, different and unique. Um, and so you start, everyone starts uh, in training, um, what we call A100, and you get the basics of doing things like writing a cable, you know, understanding the State Department's organizational structure, uh, meeting with various senior leaders who come and speak to the classes. Um, but the most uh, kind of memorable day is when you get your first assignment. Um, and so my first assignment was actually to Dubai. Um, in the United Arab Emirates, um, and you are you've listed you know prior to getting your assignment, you list you know your preference for different um, postings, and you look at things like the kind of training you would get, when you go out to post, you know how long that tour is. It's usually two years, but sometimes if it's a more dangerous place, it can be one year. Um, you look at the kind of responsibilities that you would be doing at that uh, position. And you look at the language uh, requirements. And so for this particular uh, position that I got, it was a Farsi designated position. And so I got, I spent, you know, the first year of my career actually at the Foreign Service Institute uh, taking consular training, which everyone has to do at some point um, early in their careers, and also um, learning Farsi for nine months. And then you have to test and show that you have learned the language to a certain degree and then you are shipped out to post. Um, and so I did uh, consular work uh, in Dubai for two years. Um, that was interviewing people for visas who wanted to come to the United States. That was helping American citizens who needed various services or were in distress in those countries and making sure that they were receiving fair treatment or that they could communicate with people or get legal assistance, things like that. That is kind of the bread and butter of every junior foreign service officer's career. And then once you get past that requirement, uh, you start to go into different positions based on what your, um, what we call cone is. So there are five cones, political, economic, uh, public diplomacy, management, and consular. I was a political officer. Um, that took me back to the State Department at some point to work in our operations center, which is 24 hours. So I was getting up at weird hours of the night to come to work sometimes. Um, I went uh, to uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, where I worked in the ambassador's office um, and worked with a lot of high-level visitors and delegations that came through and um, taking them to meetings with Afghan government officials or taking them out to various military bases around the country. Um, and then after that, I came back, and this is where my Farsi language uh, sort of kicked back in. Um, having done that when I was in Dubai, I had some familiarity with kind of our interactions with Iranians, because we have an Iran regional presence office out in Dubai. And so I ended up uh, getting an offer to go work on the Iran desk. Um, and then I actually spent a fair chunk of time uh, for the rest of my time in government working on Iran at the State Department and also at the National Security Council when we were doing the Iran nuclear uh, negotiations. And then um, came back uh, to the State Department for a bit um, doing economic issues, then went back to the National Security Council for my last year 
plus in government um, where I actually worked in an office called strategic planning. And that's where I kind of shifted focus and they were, they were doing a great project um, on kind of bigger workforce issues um, and specifically around talent and diversity. And in part because, you know, I have a strong interest in it, um, having been a Pickering Fellow and just kind of observed various issues over the years. Um, I worked on um, a presidential memorandum to promote diversity and inclusion and in national security that came out in late 2016. And then after that, um, I felt it was time for me to make a transition. And that's when I uh, made the move to New York. Sorry, that was really long. No, that's, that's, <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Um, and what would you say, I mean, now that you've been out of uh, the Foreign Service for, you know, three years or so, or two years or so, uh, what would you say um, is the, what do you, what do you feel was the most um, enriching thing that you've uh, done during those years? What do, what do you, when you look back at that, what do you think about in terms of what you learned and how it enriched you as a person? I, uh, when I look back, you know, I think anyone who leaves government, I think has a sense, you know, that their time serving and doing public service was one of the high points of their careers. And I certainly feel the same. Um, just being able to represent the United States is obviously a big privilege, um, you know, no matter how old you are or wherever you are in your career, whether you come in later or not, um, so I always feel like that was an amazing honor um, that I got to have early in my career and one that I'll never forget. Um, I worked with incredibly smart people, um, you know, some of the best strategic thinkers, I think, you know, that will be recorded, you know, as, as history records what happens in these years, you know, I, I have, I've had the privilege to see them in action. Um, and I feel really fortunate that I got to see how that worked um, and see how policy was actually made. Um, you know, working on a priority like Iran really allowed me the opportunity um, to see, you know, when when a government or administration has a priority that they believe is in the national interest, like how does it actually work? You know, who comes to the table? What are the decisions that are that have to be made? You know, what are the uh, how do you know how what are high level negotiations? What do they look like? What do they, what does that entail? Um, I got to see all of that kind of behind the scenes and, and that's one of the best memories I have. Yes, I totally agree with you um, on that. And actually I'm teaching a course now at Georgetown and um, very, even though the focus of the course, the topic is not you, how, you, how US foreign policy is made, mm -hmm. though it focuses on the topic of US foreign policy. Um, that obviously called that issue of how it's made off obviously comes up a lot. And, you know, I really enjoy talking about that part because mm -hmm. you really get a, a unique perspective when you're actually working on that, on these issues on a regular basis. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Um, why don't you say a little bit about the, the work that you did on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Because I, I know that we had a chat about that a couple of years ago. Um, and so maybe you could say a little bit for the audience about what you did on, on that and how that came about. Sure. So I had gone back to the State Department after two years um, working on Iran. 
and um, you know, starting to move on to other positions and tours as the Foreign Service uh, makes you do, which is a good thing. And it makes you a generalist and kind of able to be adaptable and flexible. Um, but an opportunity came up to come back and work in this uh, office where, um, you know, it was a, it was not surprisingly, I think, you know, it was a priority for that administration um, to be inclusive um, in many ways. Um, but the part that, you know, from the National Security Council perspective, we could contribute to that conversation by looking at, you know, what does diversity look like in the national security community? It is, it was the, you know, belief of that administration that diversity is one of our greatest strengths as a country. And so if it's one of our greatest strengths, how do we make sure we leverage it uh, and maximize that opportunity that we have in the national security uh, space, which is, you know, critical, you know, for, you know, the issues that we work on and the challenges that we face day in and day out. It is the last place on earth that you want to have something like groupthink or that you want to be excluding people and not bringing in the right talent uh, for reasons that have to do with diversity or bias or, you know, wanting to be exclusive. And so we took a careful look and we brought a bunch of different agencies together who work in the national security community and said, you know, what are some of the initiatives, you know, what are some of the unique challenges? Uh, because there are some unique challenges to national in the national security agencies that don't exist uh, in some other agencies like security clearances, um, you know, like dealing with classified information. So having to, you know, physically be present in an office a lot of times instead of having flexibility uh, to work elsewhere or have different hours. Um, and so what are some of the unique challenges? What are some of the interesting initiatives that other agencies have done and we can share best practices? What is, um, you know, what can we do better? What is the data that shows, you know, where we are? Um, and how can we put more opportunities and processes in place to, you know, promote diversity and inclusion rather than, um, you know, uh, keeping bias uh, in either whether it's in the hiring process or in the policymaking process. So it was, a, it was a fantastic project. I'm really glad I had the opportunity to work on it. Yes, and I have had a chance to read um, to read the document, and it's really it's really a great document. And, and the, the things that it asked the agencies and departments to do. Um, what do you, what do you think about has that challenge, or how do you think that challenge has changed or not changed? I know you're not in the national security government structure anymore, but from your perspective, uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on where we are now with that issue. Yeah, so I'm not in, in those agencies or any of the um, in government agencies anymore. I would say, you know, I think it's been well documented that, you know, State Department in particular and maybe other agencies, um, there's been an exodus of experience um, at the higher levels. And now increasingly also, we're hearing a bit more, I think at the mid-level as well. Um, there's no, I think, date, hard data that would break down, you know, whether it's if disproportionately affecting certain groups more than others. But I think in general, it is, um, I think, you know, it's, it's not, uh, I think there's definitely been some morale um, issues. Um, and so, it can be, 
in some, you know, it's obviously a challenge now. I would say it can also be an opportunity, perhaps, um, in the next couple of years, um, to see where things are and try to, you know, make changes. I do understand, you know, I've heard that, for example, you know, something we had recommended in the memorandum, and I believe is being carried out, is, you know, the um, uh, unconscious bias training, um, or we had, you know requested certain changes to the security clearance or process um, to try and make it less onerous for people who um, are the ones who will have more foreign contacts overseas. So people who may be coming from immigrant families or are children of immigrants, um, things like that. Um, I do understand there are some of those things happening. There is still data being published by some of the agencies, which is helpful for accountability purposes. Um, but you know, certainly uh, there's, I think it's documented that there have been some exits and, uh, but I don't know, uh, I don't have the hard data on how much that's affected different groups more than others. Right. And um, before we talk a little bit more about your transition from government to private sector, um, do you, how many, how many women and women of color did you work with just, you know, um, I mean, I know you don't, you don't have to count exact numbers, but, you know, when you were working um, in government, I mean, do you, do you feel like at that time there was a, you know, a D, I mean, we know it's not great, so we're not going to say it was, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, did you have, were you very often the only uh, woman or woman of color in your, in your um, time at state? Yeah, I mean, I think probably not unlike other people, it got better over time for me. Um, I think when I was younger and when first starting out, and I think at a, a different posts, depending on how big or small they are, um, you can feel often like you might be the only woman or person of color in the room. Um, and it varied by bureau as well. So depending on which geography or geographic region you were focused on, um, I think that also varied. Um, I think by the time I finished, though, I would say, you know, when I was at the National Security Council near the end, um, you know, the top leadership, I think four out of five of the top folks were women, obviously led by Susan Rice. Um, and I was seeing a lot more, um, at least, I, and this was, I think, backed up by the State Department data, at least, where there was a lot more gender diversity in the leadership positions. I think it got to around 40%, mm -hmm. um, but much less so uh, when it came to other types of diversity. Um, and I think that was my experience as well. If you're paying attention to it, I think you could see, you know, like you would see a lot more women in, um, in positions of power, which was fantastic. Um, and it, I think it's, it's so important, the representation that you see throughout your career. Um, but on the, on other categories, um, race, ethnicity, religion also, um, you know, those are the ones obviously that are reported, you know, things that are not reported like sexual orientation and things like that, unless someone chose to, uh, disclose that information, um, you wouldn't know. But I think in other types of diversity, there was definitely, um, much less of that across, I think the entire national security community. And um, I guess one more question before we, we transition. Uh, what would you tell young young women um, who want to get into the field of foreign service and um, they don't ne necessarily know the best way to do it? Um, what would you? What advice would you give them? 
Sure. I mean, I was lucky that I had kind of a formal pathway uh, through the Pickering Fellowship. There are other opportunities, as you know, you know, like the there's the Charles Rangel Fellowship that's very similar to the Pickering. Um, there's the Payne Fellowship with USAID. Um, there are other opportunities like that. There's obviously the Presidential Management Fellow Program that you can apply um, after grad school. Um, you know, there were pathways that we looked at when we were still, when I was working on the diversity project, because it was also about um, young people. It's it's dropped from, I think, in the 20 or 30 percent to, I think, in the single digits of young people coming into government um, as kind of their first uh, career choice after school. Um, and I think we're missing out uh, because we have less young people um, who can, you know, inject new skills and perspectives and the work that we do. Um, so it's definitely, there is a gap. Um, you know, there's obviously for the foreign service in particular, there is the test that you can take and that is open to anyone. Um, I think within a certain age range, you don't need a high school, uh, you don't need a college degree. Um, you, you can take the test um, and, and take it more than once. Um, so there is for the foreign service, at least a more formal, way you can enter. For other kind of uh, jobs and positions more broadly in the peace and security space or in the national security field, um, I think, you know, one of the um, things that I, I actually really love is in terms of the diversity of experience and skills that people bring, we need them. You know, we need people with science backgrounds. We need people who have program management backgrounds or data analytical backgrounds. We need all sorts of people in national security. Um, and so I would, you know, look into what your skill set is and whether you can find a match. And I'm pretty sure you would be able to find it somewhere in one of the, you know, government agencies that work on national security or foreign policy um, or in a great NGO or any of these organizations, they, they have a use for someone like you. Um, and the question is, you know, how do you want to spend your day? Do you want to spend it in the field? Do you want to spend it back in DC working, you know, doing the policy making process? Do you want to do research? You know, there's so many different kinds of jobs and part of your job is to figure out, you know, what, what do you, what would make you passionate and want to come to work every day um, and think about, you know, how you want to spend your day doing it. But I'm pretty sure there's a job for that in the national security space. Great. Okay. So let's, let's, let's transition now or talk about your transition. <laughs> so um, when it was there, the, so there obviously came a point when you realized, uh, okay, I need to do something different. And, and you decided that you would go to New York um, and you would uh, work in a private sector. Talk a little bit about that decision and how, and, and what led you to that and how that was made. Sure. So, you know, I, I hope it's come across by now how grateful I am um, for the time I spent in the foreign service at the state department and, you know, in government in general. Um, and then there came a point where, you know, I had worked now at that point with enough uh, leaders and, you know, political appointees who came in and came out of government. And I really admired the ones who had a diversity of, of experience in and out of government, um, who could bring in different perspectives over time, who had different skills, um, you know, different management styles, all sorts of things that I thought, you know, it, I would like to have that kind of experience as well. I think um, 
you know, I want to put myself in a new position. I want to challenge myself in that way and see, you know, what does it look like from the private sector side when you see these policies coming out of the federal government or the state government? You know, what does it mean to work in a global company and have, you know, uh, a footprint that is not about embassies and consulates, but about, you know, manufacturing factories or retail stores or, you know, what are your concerns? What are your interests? You know, what does it mean? Because, you know, one of the, I think, you know, coming in, I came in, you know, in 2006, you know, the uh, recession happened in, you know, 2007, 2008. And it really, I think, drove home when I was both overseas in a place like Dubai, which had been growing tremendously before the recession. And then when I was back in DC as well, about how important the US economy was to our foreign policy, actually. Um, I learned that even further, you know, working on sanctions issues, understanding the role of companies and how economic decisions were made uh, and business decisions were made. And so I was really just curious to see what that world would be like. And so I had an opportunity to um, connect with someone here at the Estee Lauder companies who had also previously served in government and was starting a new public affairs team uh, for the company. And so it was an interesting and great opportunity to kind of come in uh, on the ground for the team, at least the company has been around since 1946. So, you know, you have kind of the cushion of having institutional support um, and, and growth, but uh, as a team, we, it was relatively small and new and exciting. And so it was just a really great opportunity to join a company that I knew about and I really respected. It's, it was, you know, started by Estee Lauder in the 1940s and, you know, a strong female entrepreneur. And so I took the chance to join the company. So how has it been? How has it been working in private sector and and living in New York? <laughs> so I think I heard from another podcast that you're from Brooklyn. I'm from the Bronx. Yeah, you're from the Bronx. So I, I now live in Brooklyn and, and work in Manhattan. And, you know, it's always one of those places I wanted to try and live. It was, you know, for all the really exciting international places in the world, uh, New York is right up there as just an amazing city with things to offer that no other place can. And so I'm really glad to have had the chance to live here. I've been here now two plus years. Um, so that was part of the draw, um, was coming to a great place like this. Um, the transition and, and, you know, working here has been great. Um, you know, I think I can obviously, you know, there's a lot about the company itself that I really enjoy. Um, it was, I think this year it was, named by Forbes as the top employer for women in the United States, which was really awesome. Yeah. Um, but in general, you know, I think this goes whether you work, you know, at a global organization like this or a small business or wherever you work, I think really the main thing that uh, you want to look for and that makes a, you know, huge impact on your day-to-day -day happiness is, you know, your team um, and the culture and you know, are you, do you work well together? And I'm really lucky. I have a great team here. I have a fantastic boss. I have a great, you know, support structure here that have really welcomed me with open arms. Um, and so, you know, for that reason alone, it's it's been a really great transition. So, so, um, so, what does the future hold for you, Jane? <laughs> uh, that is a great question. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, obviously, I'm very happy here. 
Um, I still have a lot to learn, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Our team is, is growing, uh, you know, and I get to work uh, on, you know, my, fo my key focus here is on emerging markets, which is always an area I've really enjoyed. Um, and so I look forward to doing more of that. And then also staying engaged with, you know, people like you, being on the board of, of uh, WCAPS and other organizations that I feel passionately about and do really great work on issues that are close, you know, to my interests, whether it's on diversity and inclusion, you know, or in foreign policy. Um, you know, I, like I said, I met some of the smartest and best people uh, when I was in DC or when I was overseas. I still keep in touch with a lot of them. Uh, some of my best friends are still in that space. And so, you know, hopefully I'll continue to do that as well. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of nice actually having a foot in both worlds and, um, you know, New York is my home now, uh, but DC is also, you know, I go back there often. Um, and I think, you know, things like this, like things like WCAPs didn't exist uh, when I was in government. And so I really love to see kind of the evolution of how people in and out of government are evolving in, you know, space like, you know, pushing for greater diversity or, you know, thinking of uh, different, you know, initiatives and efforts in foreign policy. I think it's really exciting. Great. And do you, do you get back to Atlanta at all? You know, I, I don't. It's, I was born there and then we moved relatively quickly after I was born. And so I've not had a chance really to go back um, and spend a, a significant amount of time. Uh, but I, when I talk to people who uh, you know, know the place or grew up there and I tell them where I was born and like, it's, uh, it's, it's, I feel like sub, the Southern hospitality, even though I can't really claim it, but, uh, and I don't deserve it, but it's, it's really nice. Um, I do, I do enjoy being able to say I was born there. Great. Do you have any family there at all at this point? No, my family has kind of moved even since I, I'm the youngest of three. Um, and after I left for college, uh, my parents also started moving around and my brothers have also moved around. So we're now in pretty different places than where we were uh, in terms of where we grew up, um, all of us. But it's nice where most of us are on the East Coast. So now I, at least I get to see them on a pretty regular basis. Um, and I get to visit new places like California and, you know, places like that. So it's nice. But yeah, it is. It's kind of wish my family was all closer together. Right. Well, well, thank you so much, Jane. This has been great. Um, I don't know if, if there's any 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 final words you'd like to to say, um, you know, uh, to young people, or just a final thought on your career or where we are in foreign policy <laughs> <laughs> or DEI. I mean, anything you'd like to to kind of say as a final word um, before we before we end the podcast. I think the last thing I, I really am excited about WCAPS. Like I'm so grateful to you and others who have started this group because I think it's a, it's an important uh, kind of group of people who were not recognized in this way before. Um, and there's a lot of exciting things happening, I think, and the connections that you are facilitating and, you know, the, uh, the spotlight you're putting on, young ambassadors, um, things like that, I think will be critical for, you know, making diversity and inclusion a bigger priority for, for those of us who are working in this space. So really a thanks to you um, and everyone else uh, who's made this organization a reality.
Well, thanks. And thanks to you for being a part of it. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, working with you as well. Um, so thanks for doing this podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed listening uh, to Jane and uh, some of her, you know, really amazing things that she has done in her career. And we're always anxious to hear where our, our podcast uh, guests are heading in the future and, and staying tuned with their careers because uh, they've all done such amazing things. So thanks for listening uh, and continue to follow WCAPS, uh, our podcasts, as well as um, the activities that we talk about and report on on our online sources. Uh, we have a lot of things happening, so definitely continue to visit the website at WCAPS.org. We are going to be having a separate website for all of our podcasts. Uh, so we're going to put them on something separate and really developing the work that we're doing in a podcast. So thanks again for listening. Uh, and this is uh, Bonnie Jenkins uh, signing off. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at WCAPS.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPSNet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.